Hello and welcome to Saber Metrics. This is the Sierra Critical Examination of Fade series. We, I am Sierra. My pronouns are she and her. I'm Iris. My pronouns are also she, her. And we are talking about the first book in the Fate Zero light novel series by Gen Urobuchi, my eternal fucking enemy. <laughs> uh, boy, we sure are. Um, yeah. Yeah, we are. Or listen, listen. I know I'm the person who's always like, "Why don't they just make it a book?" And the thing is, if this is the book we get, maybe they should stay the thing they were before. Maybe Hollow Knight Rexy was better as a uh, as a visual novel instead of a book. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we'll we'll sort of get into why as we go through this novel, but like, maybe it's just how. Gen Urobuchi writes oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, like, no, it's, I... it's Gen's prose. It's Urobuchi's prose that's the issue here. Yeah, because, like, the thing is, like, there are... Like, there are absolutely a lot... I, this, I will say, I do not think this translation job is anywhere near as good as the fan translation for Fate Stay Night. It Probably is not, no. awkward as hell in a lot of places that definitely feel like localization that should have occurred did not. <laughs> However, my broader problems with how this thing is written is not the fault of the translators, I'm pretty certain. <laughs> here's, a, here, here's, a, here's a fun quote. The meaning behind the mark that appeared on Kyrie's hand, that is, the product of Kyrie acquiring the privilege to dispute the chance of getting his desire by a miracle through the fourth recreation of the Holy Grail War that was to happen three years later. That's 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 a single sentence. Yeah. And that's and also like, a whole paragraph. <laughs> yeah, it's it's impossible to parse properly, like, without reading it, like, two or three times. Uh, and, like, part and it of that... doesn't mean anything! Yeah, like, uh, like part of that is just feels like that is way too literal a translation. However, um, there there will be sections that that I will actually point out myself here, uh, where it's just like, uh, why did you write it this way, Urobuchi? Why did why did you do this? Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> even setting aside uh, uh, the difference between translation and uh, uh, original. Localization. Yeah, between translation and localization. Uh, I have issues with this novel on um, a core thematic and ideological level that are frustrating. Yeah. And also on a level of like it's it's it the Genter Ruchi focuses on particular things that if Nasu were writing this, I don't think Nasu would give a shit about. Iris, are you saying Gen might have a fixation on gender? <laughs> and I also not- think that I also think like there are there are parts that Nasu that Gen skips over that yeah. Nasu would have given us like an entire chapter of. Every single man, every single part of this book is about men doing violence towards women, but or uh uh being like weirdly misogynistic towards them, but not yeah. in like the way that Sakura's route was, but in the way where it's about the dudes. Like Yeah, there is a specific section in Act Three where I absolutely want to hit on that, and you probably know mm-hmm. already what I'm talking about. There's a uh <laughs> there's a single master in this who isn't about that, and that's because he's the gayest bitch alive. Oh, he's so fucking gay. 
and and he's also one of my favorites like yeah he's he is one of two characters that i like the other character i like is his servant because he is just a homie yeah yeah like not really a spoiler because i've already talked about waiver a lot on this podcast uh, and there's a reason there's a reason for that but like in my overall rankings of fake characters waiver is like well, before Heaven's Shield happened, Waver would have been my number three, right below Nero and Rin. But, like, now, number four, right below Nero, Rin, and Sakura. <laughs> Extremely reasonable. Like, Waver is so good. Um, but, yeah. To give, a little, to give a little background for this, um, we're going to be talking a, a, more, a little more in-depth about the background when we get to the, to the, the post-face uh, blurb that Nasu himself wrote, um, so I won't get too deep into it. Uh, but Fate Zero is a series of four, four light novels written by Gen Urobuchi. Uh, Nasu had actually been wanting to work with Urobuchi for a while. Um, for those who aren't aware and mostly only know Gen through his anime and tokusatsu work, uh, Gen first made a name for himself in the visual novel scene, like working for Nitro Plus, um, who was also a visual novel developer like Type Moon. Um, He particularly became famous for Sayano Uta. Oh, Sayano Uta's him? Yes. Fuck uh, this game. A game I have absolutely heard of, but have no intention of ever playing. Fuck Sayano Uta. Fuck Just for context of why... Uh, the brief description on Wikipedia says the Song of Saya is a suspense psychological horror lollicon arrow gay. <laughs> and I feel like that's all I really need to say about the matter. Yeah, it's it's bad, I think is uh, the best I can say for it. It's bad. Yeah, so like Nasu and Gen were contemporaries, and, and, Natsu ha- and Natsu had a lot of respect for him uh, and wanted to work for him. But it was actually Takeuchi uh, who ended up, um, you know, proposing the idea of uh, Gen writing something for the Fate franchise, uh, uh, I, I believe, during uh, while he and Natsu were actually working on Hollow Ataraxia. So, um, like... They, Nasu and Takeuchi, were working on Ataraxia at the same time that Urobuchi was uh, starting on Fate Zero. Uh, but yeah, so Nasu ended, uh, again ended up writing four visual novels. The first one, uh, which we'll be covering today, uh, is titled... I had this up previously and I lost it. There we go. The Untold Story of the Fourth Holy Grail War. Uh, one somewhat interesting thing about the fourth Holy Grail War, uh, in comparison to the fifth one, uh, is that it really emph- it, it really contrasts how the fifth Grail War was very unusual, in that most of the masters in the fifth Grail War didn't really have context for what it was supposed to look like. Um, the only two who really knew were Kyrie and Zoken, and for obvious reasons, they didn't have any reason to, like, tell the other people a whole lot about what was going on. Um, whereas, like, Ilya and Rin knew of the Grail Wars, uh, but because anyone who 
would have like given them proper context was dead they just kind of played it by ear yeah it's a it's a distinction between people who are drafted into the holy grail war by uh the powers that be and by systems of power and people who are like actively participating in those systems of power in a very different way um yeah Yeah, Most of the people who are participating in the Fourth Grail War are doing so because they want to be there. Yes. Uh, So, yeah. um, With that in mind, uh, I will go ahead and start with my summary unless there's uh, something else you want to cover real quick. No. uh, Most of the stuff I want to cover I can't really hit until we're like halfway through the summary. All right. Sounds good then. Uh, So we will begin with the prologue. Uh, so, eight years before the start of the war, Iris Veal von Einsburn gives birth to her daughter, Ilias Veal von Einsburn. Iris Veal is delighted to be a mother. As a homunculus, this birth to her is a way for her to, exp- is a way for her to express her humanity. Kuritsugu, however, can't help but cry, knowing that he will eventually be called upon to sacrifice his wife to the Holy Grail. Iris Veal tries to encourage him. Never forget, wasn't it your dream, a world where nobody would need to cry like that? Eight more years, and your battle will be over. We will carry out this ideal. I'm sure the Grail will save you. After that day, you must hold that child, Ilias Veal, once more. Stick out your chest as a normal father. End quote. Three years before the start of the war, Tokiomi Tosaka, Rin's father, and Kotamine Kirie, uh, sorry, Kotamine Rise, Kirie's father, a scheme to get Kyrie included as a master in the war to help ensure a Tosaka victory. Kyrie doesn't seem enthusiastic about teaming up with a mage and has reservations about the whole plan, but he agrees to play his part. One year before the start of the war, Karia Mato returns to Fuyuki to visit Aoi Tosaka, the woman he had been in love with but gave up to Tokiomi. Aoi reveals that she has recently given Sakura to the Matos. This disturbs Karia, who blames himself for not pushing back against Aoi when she agreed to the, do the proper mage thing and marry into the Tosakas. He immediately decides to meet with Zoken and try to offer himself up to the Crestworms to spare Sakura. Zoken reveals that he's been training Sakura with the worms for a few days now, but if Karia can win the Grail, then he will have no reason to, con- to continue torturing her. Already I, I, in the well, prologue, we're getting hard men doing hard things to yeah. protect women. Uh-huh. I, I mean, that's this whole book. Yeah. Um, and, and, like, we'll get into it later. This book is interminably grim. And not... Yeah, it, 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 there's, just, like, a few moments of lightness, but it's mostly just, uh, we're, we're uh, tough guys. We're so sad and tortured. It's just exhausting <laughs> and melodramatic and self-serious in a way that, like, I can't ever buy into. And it's yeah. just amplified here. Just, like, oh, this is a child being tortured. And it's like, okay, thanks again. I appreciate you establishing hard men doing hard things to protect women while women suffer. Yeah, there is... But really, it's the men who suffer because their women are suffering. Shut the fuck up, Gen. Gen does a lot of repetition to, like, emphasize certain points he's trying to make, um, which gets extremely irritating (laughs) after, like, the 20th time he does it. Uh, for no particular reason. It feels like um, this motherfucker has no faith in his audience. I mean, I get it because 
this is a light novel and it's for children, I guess. But I, like, I don't know what child would be reading Fate Zero. <laughs> like, there's I guess. some shit in here that is uh, uh, not. But like the, the the age demo of light novels is definitely younger than like, yeah a, a full novel. Like that when I say true. child, I mean like fourteen to sixteen. That that's a child. Yeah, that's true. That's about the age I was reading Dark Tower. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, though, though, honestly, you know Stephen King probably better writer than Gennar Ravucci on, on uh, overall. Uh, uh, yeah, you I, might I right. would actually kind of love to see Stephen King try to write a fate thing. <laughs> You've already read it. Cause, it's cause called you, The Dark Tower. I mean, yeah, I guess, but you fucking know that he would he would bring John F. Kennedy in of as a servant. Of course John F. Kennedy's a servant. <laughs> uh, anyway... Um, the main po- the the other point I want to make here about the prologue is that like, um, Karius thing, like, I think even more than like uh, all the plot beats with Iris, uh, Iris Veal, uh, sort of reveal Ribucci's approach to like women and their agency in this, because um, women don't do anything. Because Karia's story, like, Karia's whole thing with, like, the how he relates to the tragedy of Sakura uh, is treated like Aoi had absolutely no agency. And if Karia had just, like, uh, told told Aoi what to do and, like, pushed back against, like, uh, the Tosakas, then, then Aoi would not have done the thing she had done. And then, you know, uh, there's, you know, he'd be the one married to her, or at the very least there, there'd be no like Sakura. There'd be no Tosakas to be like sacrificed to the Matos. And it completely ignores the fact that like Aoi is a mage too. Uh, She's a mage too. She also made a choice. Like, yeah, she has agency in this. She agreed to marry Tokiomi. She agreed to send Sakura off to the Matos. It is it is not all on Tokiomi here. Like uh, women are not actors in this book. Like even Saber is not a person who acts upon the world. She is acted upon at basically every turn. And it's, like, deeply frustrating to read. Yeah. Um, and from what I... Like, maybe there'll be more in the light novel. I seriously doubt it. Cause, but I don't remember... I don't recall from watching the anime that there was any... There was any, uh, like, of... Any plot point where Karya grappled with the fact that, like, maybe Aoi is also just as evil as Tokiomi is. Maybe you disappearing for fucking ten years and then coming back to save a person who you haven't talked to in forever and just be kind of weird prick uh, isn't a great plan. Maybe you're just kind of an asshole. Also, other thing, uh, so we're starting off, Karya feels paper thin in a way like none of the servants in Fate Stay Night felt paper thin. There just feels like nothing to his character beyond this singular character trait. There'll be like a dude later who is just as paper thin. <laughs> but yeah, I get what you mean. Like Three of the seven servants have just nothing to them so far. Masters, Of the seven mean? masters, yeah. Yeah, like Karya is just like 
a sad dude. <laughs> like, Karya, Ryunusuke, and... Hell, even uh, Tokiomi, um, and also uh, Waver's teacher, uh, just have nothing. There's nothing to them. Yeah, Tokiomi and El Molloy are both just portrayed as, you know, generic asshole mage who want power. Tokiomi um, being that way, it, I, I can at least convince myself is kind of interesting in that that absence is notable, especially in comparison to Rin, and like there's there's some dramatic irony there. But I'm doing a lot of work to give Gen credit he hasn't earned. Yeah, like even even like with the the villains that Nasu has written, like there were distinct differences between why Gilgamesh wanted the Grail. And why Kyrie wanted the Grail, and why they acted the way they did, even though they were both huge assholes. I mean, just think about Castor um, and her master showing up. Yeah, like they showed up. They're clearly like distinct characters who have and are doing things that they want, uh, and they are distinct from everyone else. Whereas, like, I could not tell you what makes Tokiomi different from Elmaloy besides their names. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And then Ryunusuke just has nothing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Fucking hate Ryunusuke conceptually. Yeah. So let's get into Act 1 here. Um, so this this Act 1 is happening, like, uh, sort of just before the summoning happens. Um, Waver Velvet is a 19-year-old, primarily self-taught mage living at the Clock Tower. Due to his perceived lowly origins, he is not treated well by his peers or the staff. He also, he's a to... huge twink. Oh, God, yeah, uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> he attempted to change their views through reason by writing a paper titled, titled An Inquiry of Magecraft's Path in the New Century. Uh- Waver was quite, quite certain it would cause a scandal if seen by the right people, but one of his lecturers, Kenneth Elmoloy Archibald, a.k.a. Lord Elmoloy, simply trashed it after reading through it. Feeling trapped by a system that expected him to fail, Waver became desperate for a way to progress. When the Clock Tower staff accidentally delivered a holy relic met, meant for Elmoloy with, with, uh, along, along with Ray Waver's normal mail, Waver realized it was intended for the Holy Grail War and stole off with it to Japan. Upon arriving in Fuyuki, Waver used his magic to brainwash an elderly couple into believing he was their grandson who had left for Canada ten years ago. Uh, I do want to mention here that, like, while Waver is absolutely correct about the mages, um, I I do kind of appreciate... This is, like... Yeah, this is the best written part of the This is some of the novel. best writing that Urubuchi does here. Yeah, because, like, you're simultaneously like, okay, Waver, you're not wrong, but also, like, you're kind of wrong, and also you're a huge arrogant prick. Yeah, like, the way he... Like, because even though it's technically third-person narration... Um, it's the, a very the narration is clearly person. from the perspective of Waver, yeah. uh, who is basically acting like a YouTube atheist here. <laughs> We're <laughs> like, yeah, you're right, but you're kind of in being an asshole, and you're not as smart as you actually think you are. <laughs> like, yeah, and like the things he is right about are based on premises that are like kind of deeply whack, and also he is being willfully ignorant of like. He, he is, like, actively, willfully ignorant over, like, the thing that establishes power is explicitly generation, uh, generational uh, accumulation of uh, yeah. 
Okay, so first, I think it needs to be pretty explicit. Uh, Genorobuchi has done away with the metaphor of generational wealth being established, of uh, magic and magic circuits uh, being a literalization of a metaphor of generational accumulation of power and wealth. Like, he's like, no, it's just ex- literally the accumulation of magic power. I don't know what you mean that there might be, like, a, a deeper metaphor here that is being discussed. That's not important. Um, but he is, like, actively just ignoring the fact, or Weaver is actively ignoring the fact that there is, like, a literal truth here, which is, yeah, the, the other people do have more magic circuits than you, and do have more magic power than you, just because that's literally how this world works. Because they've had generations of people. Like, you might have them beat out in efficiency, but you're attached to a car battery, and they're attached to a power plant. Yeah. And it's like... And, and like, the the thing you should be railing railing against is the fact that, like, that is what's used... That is what's solely used to determine someone's worth. Um, Yes. So, yeah, like... Waver is correct that mage society has to change. But he he is so caught up in uh, how that affects him personally that he can't see the big picture. It is actually interesting to contrast Waver with Emia. Uh, uh, yeah. Because, um, and part of it is like, they could very easily have been really similar characters. But the main difference is Emia was isolated and cut off from this mage society as a whole, and Waver was not. Waver was inoculated in it and a part of it. And, like, it demonstrates what the society does as part of what it does is it captures. Waver is captured by the society because he is raised in it. And so the only thing he can imagine is being a part of it and that he should be on the top of the pile, not that there shouldn't be a pile in the first place, versus yeah. any of And so, like, uh, this part right here, I think, is, like, the best part of the book. Because it feels like there is a clear and distinct character. It's described succinctly. There's, like, things happening here. I can see a movement. It is interesting. Yeah, like, Waver's, Waver's writing is consistently the best through this whole light novel. Um, it, it just feels like Urobuchi had way more of a solid concept for what he was trying to do with that character. There's a voice for Waver. Versus, yeah. like, even Kiritsugu is, like, this is just, this feels like a parody of Grimdark. Yeah. Uh, Kyrie also isn't his fun asshole self yet. Um, in this one. Uh, he is scheming, but he he's not he's not fun in this. Um, but we'll no. sort of get to that. Uh, anyway, meanwhile, Kuritsugu and Iris Veal are having a meeting with uh, Jubst, uh Kite? Oh God, Jesus Christ! Um, One of the Einsburns. Yeah, the Einsburn asshole. His he's mostly uh, his shortened name is called Acht. That's how he's usually referred to. Uh, Acht informs them that the only holy uh, informs them that the holy relic they've been searching for in Cornwall has arrived. Then asks Iris Veal for the status of the Holy Grail's vessel. We of course know that Iris herself is the vessel, um, 
And she replies, no problems, even in Fuyuki it will function normally. Ah, to determine to finally win a Grail War, orders Kuritsugu to leave none of the competition alive. Kuritsugu says what Ach wants to hear, but in his heart, he does not care about the Einsburn family and intends to use the Grail to fulfill his own wish. Retiring to their rooms, Irisville and Kuritsugu open the package to find Avalon, the scabbard of King Arthur. Kuritsugu appears unsatisfied, and Irisville asks why. Quote, uh, With such a perfect relic, the summoned heroic spirit will definitely be the one we want, he says. But his, and, uh, but his and my personalities are too vastly different. There probably isn't anyone in the world who is more incompatible with the ways of a knight. Dropping the subject, Kuritsugu reviews the information on the masters he had requested from a spy he placed in the clock tower. He takes particular interest in Kyrie's file. Kyrie's history doesn't make sense to him. When it comes down to it, he's not some sort of genius, just a normal man, he explains. Uh, but his achievement of quick results through complete and total effort is indeed scary. Certainly he has to exert 10 or 20 times more effort than other people to achieve this level, but he actually stops when there's only one step left, and then without any lingering love, transfers into another region. All the things he raised laboriously all along are tossed out like trash. He clearly chose a lifestyle many times more exciting than that of others, but in this man's life, he has never let others feel affection. This guy is definitely a dangerous man, end quote. Uh, this whole section is just is just Kuritsugu explaining Kyrie's personality from Fate's Day Night. Uh-huh. It's like, did you read Fate's Day Night? Just in case you didn't, here's Kyrie's entire deal <laughs> explained to you. Uh, it's like, yeah, man, we... We get it. We get what Kyrie's deal is. And we get that this is about dudes being contrast to each other. Okay, sure. Like, there's just not much to say here. Yeah, like, it's it's just such a artificial way of, like, having the two sort of main male characters. Because uh, um, Kyrie is about to do this with Kuritsugu. <laughs> We're literally not seeing these characters do anything. We're just having other people they're tell us. They're just reading us. reports. Yeah. They're, ju- they're literally just telling us what other people are doing. Like, we're not seeing how Kyrie is like this, because that would be hard. Instead, just tell us what we should infer from what we should be seeing instead. Yeah, this is just it's the most awkward and artificial way you could possibly set up a rivalry. Because, like... Um, Gen and Gen already knows that Kuritsugu and Kyrie uh, are gonna be rivals, and like he's clearly trying to foreshadow that. But instead of doing it in any sort of interesting way, it's just like ah, they're reading the reports and they take particular interest in each other's reports because they can sense something about the patterns because they're both hard men. It's just fuck off. Shut up and kiss you, stupid bitches, or go away. Anyway, uh, speaking of what I was just saying, over in Fuyuki, Tokiomi Tosaka is receiving the same report from the spy in the clock tower and is secretly debriefing with Kyrie. I do find it's funny that the spy is giving the information to, like, multiple people. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only part of this thing I like. Uh, Kyrie has already summoned his servant, Hassan Isaba, of the assassin class. Tokiomi has not summoned his yet, but the relic he requested has just arrived, so it won't be long now. 
Reviewing the report, Kyrie takes a particular interest in Kiritsugu. He borrows the document to review it in more detail, then heads up to the ground floor where he encounters an eight-year-old Rin, which is the part of this segment I actually like. Uh, she, along with her mother, are leaving to stay at her grandfather's house, a decision Tokiomi made to try to keep them safe from the Grail War. Rin is not particularly happy to be leaving, and is less happy that Kyrie will be the only one staying with her dad. Uh, Kyrie, can I trust you? Will you protect father to the end? Will you Absolutely promise me that? Not. She asks. That is impossible, he replies. If this war was benign enough for me to promise you that, then there would be no reason for you and your mother to get out of harm's way, right? As I thought, I don't like you one bit. Rin then leaves the house with her luggage as Aoi says her goodbyes to Kyrie as well. Speaking to Aoi, uh, Kyrie makes this interesting observation in his mind. Quote, the way Kyrie sees it, Tosaka Aoi is the perfect wife, solemn and discreet, meticulous understanding of her husband and never interfering, regarding loyalty as higher than love and has respect for duty. In short, she's the model of the perfect wife and mother from older times. In an era where feminist movement has begun to soak through society, she's like a character carved from stone. Tokiomi has really picked a person most compatible with, with himself and as his spouse, end quote. And the thing that bothers me most about this is that while it is absolutely accurate to Tokiomi, I'm not certain whether Gen thinks that is a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, th- like... It kind of seems like it's just a neutral observation. Like, ah, yes, that is also a valid way to live. <laughs> like, it, this feels like a thing where, like, if this were in Fate Stay Night, um, we would have, say, spent two and or full roots demonstrating this persona that is established. And then on a third route, it uh, then is completely unveiled as being uh, an absurd performance that does deep harm and is, har- is hiding... Uh, severe violence and trauma happening to this person and provided a perspective through which to understand her um, don't worry though that's not going to happen here yeah Aoi just leaves the narrative from here on out i mean we know she super dies at some point yeah like that just is not going to be important yeah uh after seeing them out, Kyrie sits down in the living room to read the report uh, taking a particular interest in Kuritsugu's file Based on the sheer number of high-risk missions Kiritsugu has taken, so many that he would have had to be executing multiple missions in parallel, Kyrie concludes that the man has some sort of self-destructive mentality driving him. Kyrie decides he must meet this man and ask him a question. What is it that you are seeking that you would participate in this battle? What do you obtain from it in the end? So again, Kyrie just reads a report, and from that, uh, understands the, the core of Kyrie's personality. <laughs> yeah. It's like no no interaction necessary. We just we can just exposit the character dynamic. It's fine. We don't have to actually demonstrate or like see any of this on screen. We can just say it and it'll be true. <laughs> it's just why is this even here? Like <laughs> god. Um Anyway, back to Karia, uh, who has managed to withstand the pain of the Mato's worms, but it has, it has taken a severe toll on his body, turning his hair white, covering his skin with lesions, and poisoning his veins with prana that makes them look like inky black cracks. It's unnatural that he's even still alive. 
If he's not careful about how he uses his magic circuits, the worms may devour him before the war even ends. On the night he is to summon his servant, he meets Sakura in the Mato residence. At this point, Sakura's personality has changed to the one we're familiar with from the start of Fate's Day Night. She expresses concern about Karya's appearance, and he tries to reassure her by promising that once the war is over, he'll play with her again and will bring Aoi and Rin along too. Yeah, this is just kind of upsetting. Yeah. Um, it also demonstrates a love that Gen has with, like, drama- uh, obvious dramatic irony. Like, yeah, there's I mean, a that's, lot of that's... instances where, like, someone we know is not going to do the thing they promise because of what we know from Fate Stay and I promises something. Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's like constantly. this whole book. Like, even yeah. conceptually, this book is just a single big exercise in dramatic irony. And Gen's uh, reaction to that is, let's turn it all the way up to a melodrama. And I'm the yeah, bitch let's... that likes soap <laughs> operas. And even I'm like, okay, this is maybe a bit much. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on to Act 2. Uh, Waver summons his servant using the blood from some live chickens he bought to create the summoning circle. I did kind of skip over it, but Waver bought some live chickens and has been enduring the noise they make uh, in order to like have blood to make the summoning circle. <laughs> and there's a there is a fun point where there is a very funny par- portion where like uh, it he talks about how much trouble he had like actually butchering the chickens yeah uh, waiver waiver's fun waiver remains the only fun part of this yeah uh in front of him appears a giant beefcake of a man who asks waiver if he's his master this is alexander the great aka aka iskandar of the rider class waiver says he is his master and rider immediately asks waiver where he can find some books Despite it being the middle of the night, Waver takes Ryder to Fuyuki's central library. After waiting outside for Ryder for about half an hour, he hears a breaking sound. Turning around, he sees Ryder tearing off the security shutters at the library's entrance. When Waver uh, demands to know what Ryder did that for, he shows Waver the books he picked out and says, I couldn't pick this up when in spirit form, could I? Flustered and panicked by Iskandar's actions, Waver convinces him to quickly head back to his house. Upon reaching the big bridge uh, in Fuyuki, Waver feels safe enough to slow down their retreat and relax a bit. He finally takes a look at the books Ryder took and asks, asks him why he picked out a world map and an, and an anthology of Homer's poetry. You can't start a war without a map, Ryder replies. Isn't it obvious? Ryder asks his master to point out where Macedonia and Persia are. Waver humors him and Ryder immediately bursts into laughter. That's small. Only that, only that on such a big earth? Hmm, good. I was worried by an era where there is no unknown land anymore. But if it's that big, then I'm fine. He starts detailing his plan to conquer the world, but Waver interrupts him, reminding him their priority is supposed to be the Grail. Ryder says that's just the first step, and then asks Waver what he wants to do with it. He wants to be sure Waver's goal isn't to conquer the world too, because that would make him Ryder's enemy. Waver says he has no interest in conquering. What I wish for is only to be judged equitably, to renew the impression of my colleagues at the clock tower, who never acknowledge my talent. Ryder mocks his wish, telling him his ambition is far too puny. 
If you want respect from others so much, right? I'll tell you, boy. Use the power of the grail to grow by a good 30 centimeters. When you'll have a higher view over things, yeah, you will be looking at most people from above. Enraged by Ryder's insults, Waver nearly uses a command seal to bring him in line, but he manages to keep his emotions in check and calm himself down. They get back to discussing the Grail War, and Ryder seems pretty confident he'll be able to win. Waver asks him for proof of his power, and Ryder obliges, showing Waver his noble phantasm. We don't get to see what it is just yet, but Waver is very impressed, believing Ryder truly is the strongest servant he had wished for. This scene fucking rules. It's great. Uh, Alexander being like, mm, damn, you a petty bitch. You should maybe instead wish to grow uh, half a foot so you stop being a short king. <laughs> uh, it's, it's really funny. Like, a great contrast of perspectives. Because, like, Ryder... <laughs> Ryder is ridiculous. Uh, but also, like sort of undergirding his absurd like comical statements like is a core truth that waiver is thinking too small like as we mentioned before it shouldn't just be about him but that all that's all that waiver seems to be care about is for himself to be acknowledged by Mm -hmm. the clock tower uh when actually like what he should be doing is like wishing for more fundamental changes to the clock tower that would benefit both him and like anyone else who wants to be a mage uh and like waver saying that ambition is puny is absolutely correct yeah like he waver should be wanting to conquer the clock tower yeah uh, like not just be acknowledged by it Uh, anyway, um, uh, are we good to move on? Yeah, I don't have anything more here. Okay. Uh, at Einsburn Castle, Karitsugu plays in the snow with Ilya, and Saber and Iris Veal watch them from a window. Saber is surprised to see Karitsugu acting cheerful. Her impression of her master was that, a more, was that of a more cold-hearted person, since he hadn't said a word to her since she was summoned. She wonders if she did something to upset him, but Iris Veal does not believe that to be the case. What he is angry at must be the legend of the King Arthur that was transmitted to us, she explains. He must be angry at the people who surrounded you in your era, at the cruelty of those who forced the duty of a king on a small girl. That wasn't the case, Saber replies. I was prepared ever since I pulled the sword from the stone. The fact that you accept that fate like that is all the more provoking. Perhaps it is on that part point he is angry at you, the girl named Artoria. Hearing Iris Veal's conclusion, Saber laments that they are a truly incompatible team. She has formed a much better relationship with Iris Veal, however, who has an air and personality similar to a pro- princess of Saber's own era. The perfect match for a knight. Changing the topic, they discuss their motivations for fighting for the Grail. At some point, Saber asks Iris Veal if she's okay leaving for Japan and parting with her child. Ah, that. It's fine. There is no need for me and my child to part, she says. If I am to cease to exist as Iris feel, it doesn't mean I will disappear. When she grows up, I am sure she will understand, because she is an Einsburn woman like me. Saber isn't sure what she means by that, but she tries to reassure Iris feel. 
You will definitely survive. I will protect you until the end. I swear at it. I swear it on the pride of my sword. <laughs> to, to complete the dramatic irony, after Kuritsugu finishes playing with Ilya, he promises he won't make Ilya wait. He'll come back quickly from the Grail War. It's just It just keeps happening. He just keeps m- manufacturing scenarios for this to happen. Yep. <laughs> um, also... Also, like, a very blatant uh, mirror to, like, very blatant, like, uh, sort of contrast here with how Shiro treated the revelation of Saber being Artoria. Like, Kuritsugu is mad about it, but his response is just to be like, well, I gotta work with her, so I better just, like be quiet and not interact with her. Uh, so that way I don't have to think about it and we don't have to like argue with each other. Whereas like when this happens again with Shiro, Shiro is just like constantly arguing with Saber about it. Yeah. Uh, and like both of them are obnoxious uh, because of it. <laughs> It's true, both of them are incredibly fucking obnoxious. Yeah. Uh, like, neither of them, like, really ever find the... manage to find, like, the appropriate way to, like, actually discuss their reservations with Saber. Neither of them have any goddamn chill. <laughs> uh, but, like, at least Shiro didn't just fucking ghost Saber completely. I guess. <laughs> like, uh, here's so, is just a low bar about it. Yeah. Um. All right. Next, we meet our final master in the Holy Grail War, a serial killer named Uriu Ryunosuke. Fuck this his, bitch. Yeah, his personality and motivations really aren't that interesting, so I'm not going to spend much time on him. Basically, after being away from home for five years, he comes back and breaks into the storehouse where he had killed his sister, his first victim. He finds an old book with a bunch of weird occult shit in it and decides to try out one of the rituals, which just so happens to be for summoning a servant. To create the summoning circle, he breaks into the house of a four-person family and kills everyone except a young boy, using their blood to paint the circle. Ryunosuke ends up summoning Castor and offers the boy, who he has kept tied up and gagged, as a meal. At first, Castor appears to care for the boy, untying him and bidding him to escape. However, as soon as the boy nears the entranceway, a mass of tentacles descends from the second floor, dragging the boy up and delivering him to the maw of some otherworldly creature that Castor had summoned moments ago. Ryanosuke is delighted to find that Castor is just as fucked up as he is, and Castor finally introduces himself as Bluebeard. Uh, uh, at one point, like... It- book even goes like oh you know Ryunusuke prefers women for inflicting violence on and it's just like cool you are coming up with a literal parody of uh gender serial murderer yeah like uh when I say I'm I'm not gonna spend much time with him like I skipped over a lot of words that Gen Urobuchi devoted to like explaining Ryunusuke's backstory and like his motivations for killing like there's a, there's a there's a lot of stuff that just takes place in Ryunosuke's mind 
Yeah, and I like, wish going I was over his whole deal, and it, and it, none of it matters because it is just completely generic serial killer delusion shit uh, that like only ever happens in fucking uh, in fucking movies. It just sucks, is the thing. Like, it just sucks ass. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just, like, he's not doing anything interesting here with the whole serial killer thing. Like, it's just another one of those. Um, anyway, uh, Caster is a little more interesting, but, like, not by much, and his motivations are still, as we will get to in the finale of Act 4, centered on a woman. <laughs> yep. So... <laughs> Uh, at the Tosaka residence, uh, Kyrie orders assassins, Assassin to sneak up on Tokiomi. Unbeknownst to Assassin, this turns out to be a feint. Both men deliberately sacrifice Assassin to Tokiomi's servant, Gilgamesh, knowing that other masters will be spying on the residence. The plan is to make it seem like Kyrie is out of the war, when in reality his assassin servant is not just one assassin, but many. Uh, I'm kind of covering a lot of info a little bit out of order uh, because it's all delivered in the most painstaking expository fashion. It's really fucking boring, so I'm just summarizing. <laughs> yeah, um, you're right. It is. One of those people watching happens to be Waver. He tries to tell Ryder that Heaven's Feel has begun, but Ryder is too distracted watching videos about military aircraft. I love this man. God, <laughs> uh, more- rules. <laughs> Uh, there's a point where, I didn't put this in my summary, but I do want to, like, um, mention it. Uh, there's a point, like, while he's, uh, watching his videos where he sees footage of, oh, God, where the, where the hell is this thing? Uh, he sees footage of, like, the, the B2, uh, the B2 stealth bomber as, like, I'm thinking of buying ten of those. And Waver's like, you could just buy a whole ass country if you have that sort of money. Oh, <laughs> uh, it rules. Uh, anyway, uh, after prodding from Waver, Ryder asks him how Assassin was killed. Waver is embarrassed to admit he doesn't know. It happened quickly and he didn't get a good look. Uh, he did, however, see enough to start questioning what was up with the noble phantasm he saw. It seemed like there were a bunch of weapons just being thrown away, but that doesn't make sense. Eventually, Ryder gets up and tells Waver they're departing for the front. He's going to find the other servants and hunt them. Uh, Moving on to Act 3. Reviewing the footage he captured of Assassin's death, Kuritsugu immediately suspects the attack was staged, because of course he does. Uh, He is currently in Fuyuki, in a hotel room with his pupil and partner, Hisao Maiai. who he has taught to fight like him for 10 years now. He asks her for her own opinion on the event, and she agrees that it seems like they were seeing something they were meant to see. Suspecting that the church may be up to something, he orders uh, Miaya to uh, patrol the Fuyuki church, but to prioritize not being discovered. We now learn Kuritsugu's secret technique, the thing that got him branded as a heretic and earned him the nickname Magus Killer. Using a fucking knows gun. how to harness the incredible power of the gun. <laughs> yeah, his plan is, yeah, I'm just going to shoot them with yeah. like a gun, and they're uh-huh. going to die, because it's a fucking gun. And you know yeah. what? Honestly? He's right. <laughs> Pretty good plan. This is the one thing I like about Kuritsugu. 
I, sometimes it's like, you know what? Yep, yeah, yeah, man. Sometimes you just shoot a dude with a fucking gun and they die because it's a fucking gun. Yeah. Uh, this primarily gives Urubushi an excuse to describe a bunch of guns and tactical gear he probably thinks is cool. Oh, it's the most. It's so the much. the most. It is just, like, loving descriptions of gun after gun after gun. And I'm just like, again, honey, I didn't need this much. You didn't. Okay, again. Okay. Yeah, just an example, the base is a wealthier WA-2000 semi-automatic sniper rifle, a rifle with a total length a little over 90 centimeters in a compact size. The pull-up structure with a gas-operated magazine gives the gun barrel a length of 65 centimeters. Shut the fuck up, Gen. Eat shit, nerd. <laughs> truly. I don't truly. care. It's a, just tell me it's a sniper rifle. That's enough. That's what I need to know. I know. Gen needs you to know exactly, exactly what is up with this gun. Uh, in addition to normal weaponry, though, Kiritsugu has also crafted 12 magic bolts that have powdered bones from Kiritsugu's own body sealed in their cores. This is the cool shit. That, yeah, that, part, that part's actually kind of tight. I, I will admit that. Yeah, this allows the bolts to become an imitation of a conceptual weapon, much like a noble phantasm. Feeling his gun, Kiritsu suddenly becomes melancholy. It's <laughs> just oh, the funniest thing. Uh, wondering if he'll be able to remember the touch of his wife and daughter before. Uh, Maya pulls him out of his stupor by kissing him on the lips. This is this is the second I was talking about. Where like this is um, Gen writing Kiritsu as at at like the most cliche. Uh, hard man doing hard things. Hard man doing hard things, and he's sad about it. Like the moment where Gen writes about Kuritsugu caressing his gun and worry and worrying that he's going to forget how his wife and daughter feel is just gee, ugh, Jesus Christ, man. Uh, even uh, like John Wick is more subtle than this. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, it's you're not wrong. also john wick is more fun than this oh so much more fun uh i I wish john wick was here instead of kuritsuku i wish i'm always saying i wish john wick was here god let keanu reeves summon saber honestly yeah that would be tight uh also also there's just like also, like, there's just the weird shit with him, like, uh, both, like, being a mentor figure for Maya, but also, like, this weird sexual tension that's happening with a woman that he raised since she was a child, and he presumably was still an adult. It's yeah, like, yeah, 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 got yeah. some strange grooming shit going on here, man. Just everything about it is just unpleasant. And I just, like getting, I don't need this. I'm getting kite vibes from this shit. <laughs> and I don't like it. Uh, yeah, anyway. Um, at the same time, uh, we have something much more enjoyable happening, which is that Iris and Saber are arriving at the Fuyuki airport. Uh, since Saber cannot go into spirit form, she is dressed in a handsome suit and is acting as Iris's chauffeur. Please do not question why I am abbreviating Iris Veal's name as Iris in this scenario. 
Irisville asks if Saber was impressed by the airplane, but she didn't find it surprising at all. The Grail gives her some information about the present era, after all, and she, is, and she has a skill dedicated to riding. My riding skill applies to all vehicles, she says. If I can sit on a saddle and seize it and seize a bridle, I can manage the rest from instinct, end quote. <laughs> Saber out here just Saber going commandeering like, a Boeing 747. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Irisville finds this hilarious. Uh, and although she's a little disappointed that Saber didn't find the flight to be particularly exciting, she's glad Saber accompanied her. I'm happy I could travel with you, Saber, she says. I can't get tired of looking at you. Uh, Saber once again yeah. killing the ladies. Uh, okay, this part is weird. Um, because Gen's doing a gender here. Yeah. Very hard. Um, the the so- thing that makes me hesitate a bit with this um, compared to like how Rin was like, oh yeah, Saber's pretty as hell, is that Gen is doing this with the caveat that like, ah, uh, Saber is like dressed up like a guy right now. There is an exact quote, which is, this isn't the perverted beauty of having a beautiful woman dressed as a man. Fuck you, Gen. Yeah. Uh-huh. Eat shit. Um, th- like, this whole scene is weird because, like, it, it is the closest, uh, Irisville has, like, a clear personality in a way most characters in this book don't, and so that's cool. Um, and, like, this is the closest we get to her having agency in the world. Like, she wants to see the world. She wants to see everything around her and knows she won't get to. Okay, yeah, that's that's fine. But, like, the gender shit happening here is so deeply whack, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I actually kind of want to read the rest of that particular paragraph. Um, yeah. Because it really drives home what Gen is doing here. Um, It continues, The air of Saber's cold and hard face isn't that of a feminine complexion. It was already a given that her disguising as a man was uh, unequaled as a beautiful young man. Along with her thin stature, her face was obviously glamorous and fair-skinned, which could pass as the the manly, charming air of a pure young man. Just Gen going, man, 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 man. And like, given the context of as awkward as the scenes were when Nasu tried to write them, Nasu was going for something when, um, like, uh, Saber talked, uh, when Saber was in, remember when Saber was in the bath and like Shiro walked in on her and like Saber was not embarrassed for shiro to see her naked what saber was embarrassed about was that she did not feel feminine enough Mm -hmm. and that is that is where that is what her like um discomfort stemmed from is that she part of her didn't understand shiro's affection because she didn't feel enough like a woman Mm -hmm. and here again is going like oh well yes of course saber looks like a man it's like I go to hell. <laughs> it's just exhausting. I maybe Gen does something about uh, with this in the next couple of books. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm trying really hard to it. give him enough rope to hang himself with, but like this motherfucker wrote Sayana Uda. Yeah, I, 
he's already done it. We're good. Um, the thing that makes this scene better, that, so like, uh, I'm gonna mention this particularly here, but it it applies for to like this whole light novel as well. But like, remember when we were talking about, um, the UFO table adaptations of Heaven's Feel, and I lamented that. Like my issue, the, my sort of overarching issue with the Heaven's Feel adaptations is that, like, they didn't really spend a whole lot of time with the characters' interiority and were mostly uh, concerned with the action parts. Mm-hmm. And they did things that that prioritized those action scenes. Uh huh. What made those? Uh, adaptations, I think, an inferior way to experience Heaven's Feel is, I think, the same uh, thing that makes the UFO adaptations of Fate Zero the better way of experiencing Fate Zero. Uh, At least from this first section. We'll see if that holds true later. But at least for now, I kind of think it's you're better off like getting just watching the anime to experience the first light novel because at least then you don't get these like really weird uh and like repetitive sections of like um internal dialogue that don't matter or in the case of saber have like uncomfortable connotations yeah you just get iris veal and saber talking to each other Mm -hmm. without that uh like uncomfortable context yeah <laughs> so it's a weird inversion I, also like the fight scenes in the anime are probably more than the most boring thing on the planet yeah the fight yeah. scene in this book sucks ass and it's the last half of the book yeah remembering rem- like i remember watching the fight scene uh between lancer and saber uh, in and also between like uh, Berserker and, and Archer uh, in the anime, and thinking, "Yo, those kicked ass," um, and like Urobuchi's descriptions do not come up to par with Nasu's <laughs> for the fight scenes here. <laughs> like um, Nasu may not have described Nasu's descriptions may not be complex. In terms of like doing like a, a lot of choreography, uh, but they have way more emotion behind them, and that makes up for a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, continuing, uh, getting too far ahead of myself here. Um, continuing with this scene, uh, since Kuritsugu is busy doing his uh, grizzled assassin shtick, mm-hmm. Iris Veal convinces Saber to go sightseeing with her, claiming that they'll need to patrol anyway in order to root out enemy servants. Saber is well aware that Iris Veal's true motivations are pleasure rather than business, but she doesn't object to too much to the idea, and the two of them have a pleasant day wandering Fuyuki. As they stroll along the beach at night, however, the two of them suddenly sense the presence of a servant and decide to take the bait. Iris Veal secretly activates a small transmission device Kuritsu gave her, but she hopes Saber will be able to end the fight before Kuritsu enters the battle. And you may be thinking... Dear listener, Iris, why do you skip over all this, all the parts where Iris Veal hanged out with Saber? And the answer is, I didn't really skip over that much. Yeah, there's like a scene. Yeah. 
like uh there's there's no dialogue that happens really like uh well there is but it's the dialogue that happens uh is just saber and iris veal continuing to talk about karitsugu yep there's no like iris veal and saber having a cute date part that's that's uh elaborate upon like you would expect nasu to do in this scenario uh because he did that in uh two of the roots of fate stay night mm-hmm. uh it, it that is not what that's not what gen gives gives a shit about uh, no because if they're not because if they're doing that then they're not talking about karitsugu and they're not establishing melodrama and dramatic irony yeah uh, meanwhile, Ryder and Waver are sitting on, on top of the arch of the Big Fuyuki Bridge, which is over 50 meters high. Though it'd be more accurate to say Waver is clinging to the bridge for dear life. Ryder is using the vantage point to observe the activity down below. He notices the enemy servant too, and concludes that it's meant to lure other servants out, just like Saber and Irisville thought. Waver desperately tries to convince Ryder to go back down to the ground, but Ryder refuses, telling him to read the book he brought if he's bored. This book, turns out, is the Iliad. Waver asks him why he brought it, to which Ryder responds, The Iliad is very profound. At the height of battle, I would suddenly get the urge to read a verse of poetry. At a time like that, I feel bad when I can't reread something immediately. Soon, Ryder notices Saber's presence as well, and realizes that a fight between servants is going to happen. He decides to study the fight from atop the bridge. Again, just a really fun scene with Ryder and Waver. Yeah, Ryder's just fun. Um, not a not a whole lot going on thematically. They're just they're just being goofballs. Uh, Saber and Iris Veal meet the enemy servant, who turns out to be Lancer. To Saber's surprise, he's wielding two spears, one long. Uh, sorry, one long red one and one shorter yellow one. He also has a mystic face, which is able to charm a woman at a glance. Irisville and Saber are both easily able to resist the magic, though, which pleases Lancer. He describes his ability as a curse he's had since he was born, and is glad to know it won't impact his fight with Saber. Meanwhile, Kuritsugu and Maya arrive at the battlefield and search for an observation point. Maya points out a Derek crane, but Kiritsugu realizes the most ideal place will also be picked out by others. They instead split up to find different observation points that have a view of both Saber's battleground and the crane. This turns out to be a wise decision, as the new assassin servant takes his spot on the crane, observing the battle at Kirie's order. As Tokiomi and Kirie watch the battle between evenly matched servants unfold, Tokiomi expresses surprise at Iris Veal's presence. Kuritsugu's misdirection seems to have worked, since Tokiomi seems to now be under the impression that Saber's actual master is Iris Veal, not Kuritsugu. He orders Kirie to pay close attention to her. As the battle rages, Kuritsugu sets up his his sniper rifle at his new vantage point. Uh, He has a clear and easy shot on Lancer's master, but Assassin's presence on the crane complicates things. Taking the shot would reveal his location, and Saber is too far away to defend him. He could use a command spell, but then Iris Veal would be left alone with Lancer. Reluctantly, he decides to wait and watch the battle for now, as any other action would be too risky. Lancer's master, meanwhile, has decided this battle has taken far too long, and orders Lancer to unleash his noble phantasm. 
Lancer removes the amulet from his red spear, allowing Prana to flow through it. With its power and leash, it's now able to temporarily disrupt the flow of Prana wherever its tip touches. When Saber parries it, her winds are momentarily disrupted just long enough for Lancer to see the true shape of her sword. And when he strikes her armor, he's able to completely bypass it and give her a minor cut, since her armor is purely magical in nature. Determining that her armor will no longer be useful, Saber unsummons it to give her more speed and agility. She then points her sword behind her, focusing her magic, and releases it in a burst of wind similar to a jet engine, betting that by dashing at Lancer significantly faster, she'll be able to strike him before he can retaliate. Lancer, however, had deliberately revealed the Red Spear's power first, hoping Saber would drop her armor in response. He kicks up his short yellow spear and aims it directly at her throat. By changing her angle of attack to settle for a minor wound instead of a lethal blow, Saber is just barely able to avoid getting killed. They both take wounds on their left arms. Saber's wound re refuses to heal, though, even with Iris Veal attempting to help with magic. It's at this point that Lancer reveals the names of both his noble phantasms. Gay Derg, Crimson Rose of Exorcism, and Gay Budi, uh, I'm probably saying that wrong, Golden Rose of Mortality. Wounds dealt by the latter will never heal until either the lance is destroyed or Lancer is vanquished. Saber now has enough information to figure out who her opponent is. The first warrior of the Knights of Fianna, Diarmuid of the Love Spot. Lancer was also able to discern Artoria's identity when he disrupted her sword's wind and saw that it was clearly Excalibur. Despite being in a pretty bad situation, Saber is stoked to be presented with such a tough fight this early in the war. Uh, just like in Fate Stay Night, Saber is just happy to be here and fighting. <laughs> Can I be honest? It is deeply fucking boring to have Lancer be a different Irish uh, myth who uses spears that are incredibly lethal. Yeah. That, that's so fucking boring. Uh, and to make it more boring, uh, like, Lancer is also just like... Uh, this Lancer is not sort of like the like the cocky asshole that um that Kakulin was. He's just not fun. Yeah, like he's just generic honorable battle man. Also um, I, to the point is, where it can sometimes like if you're not paying close attention, it can sometimes be difficult to discern whether it's Saber talking or Lancer because they both have roughly the same personality in this fight. Also, and this is like a minor quibble, but like it ties into me just being like, this Lancer is fucking boring because now it's just Irish Lancer, but two spheres. Uh, Diarmo, yeah. if I remember right, didn't use two spheres. He used a spear and a sword. He had two spheres, but one of the spheres was used for... Um, like lesser fights and one of them was used for uh life or death fights uh and, like yeah you are correct i actually i forgot to look this up earlier i was going to and then it slipped my mind uh but yeah um i'm showing i can't here remember what that, his swords were named but like it, yeah it was um uh a sword named uh Mor Moraltach or Noraltach, the great fury um, given by the sea god uh, uh, Mananan Makhlir. 
Uh, it is said that it is said of a morale talk that it left no stroke or no no blow unfinished at the first trial. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and like uh, that, uh, so that would have been fun. Okay, yeah. So he 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 both wielded two swords and two spears. So mm-hmm. he did we- he, he did wield two spears, but also yeah, like you could have also included the swords together. He, he like <laughs> yeah. he he had two different spears. He used one for real fights and one for like lesser fights. And like that is that is an interesting distinction. Having somebody have multiple uh, noble phantasms that they have to take out as uh, as circumstances dictate would have been interesting for a fight. Like that would have been cool. Yeah, and um, also, like, having a neat parallel where, um, like how when, when Lancer fights Archer for, the, for Assignment Fate, Stay Night, Lancer is surprised to see that Archer is not using a bow, he's using two short swords. Yeah. Uh, and he has to, like, adapt his expectations to what's actually happening. It'd be kind of fun and a neat parallel, uh, given that this is also the first fight that occurs uh the first real fight that occurs in um, Fate Zero, if Lancer did what Archer did, where, you know, Saber is expecting, ah, he's Lancer. I see he has some spears. I know how this is going to go. And then Lancer, in a tight spot, brings out some swords, and Saber's like, wait, hold on, what the fuck just happened? (laughs) And now she has to change her fighting style completely. Um, but that's not what happens. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, as they both prepare to clash again, they're interrupted by the sound of lightning, and they both sense a third servant enter the battlefield before they see him. Iskandar has decided to intervene, riding in on a chariot pulled by two bulls that can fly through the sky, leaving a trail of violet sparks of lightning in its wake. Ryder immediately announces his true name and class of Saber and Lancer, which infuriates Waver. <laughs> this shit rules! Yeah, he's like, yo, what's up? I'm Iskandar, I'm of the Ryder class. That's good to see you. I'm a, I'm the king. Uh, Ryder then presents a proposal to the two servants. I don't know what ex- expectations you have of the Grail, but now consider for a moment whether your wishes are even greater than the desire to possess all of Earth and Heaven. I have descended upon the battlefield, so do you have any intention to pass the Holy Grail to me? If you forfeit your claim to the Grail, I would regard you as friends and share with you the joy of conquering the world. They are both insulted by the question, with Saber declaring the whole proposal nonsense. Before Ryder's negotiations can get worse, Lancer's master interrupts them, having recognized Waver's voice. And here I was wondering for what reason you stole my holy, holy relic for in your outrage. I didn't think you would actually have the guts to join the Heaven's Feel on your own, Waver Velvet. Waver immediately recognizes that Lancer's master is his lecturer, Lord Elmaloy. Elmaloy tells him he's about to teach Waver the true meaning of the war, making it plain that he is going to actively try to kill his student. Waver is terrified by this, but then feels Ryder's hand gently cover his shoulders to comfort him. Oi, Magus, if I understand correctly, you were supposed to be my master instead of that kid, apparently, Ryder says. That thought is beyond ridiculous. The man that deserves to be my master should be a warrior that rides with me into the battlefield, not a coward that doesn't even dare show his face. 
Come on out. There must be others, friends that are hiding in the darkness and spying on us. What a shame, what a shame, really. The heroes of might gathered at Fuyuki. Seeing the prowess displayed here by Saber and Lancer, does it not invoke any sentiments from you? Having a name that deserves praise yet concealing yourself and spying in secrecy? What cowardice. Even heroic spirits will be troubled upon hearing this, huh? Though no Magus would be foolish enough to fall for Ryder's goading, Tokiomi realizes that Gilgamesh is exactly the sort of person who would not stand for listening to, the, to this taunt, to uh, Ryder's taunts in silence. Archer does appear, of course, claiming that he alone is the true king, and everyone else here calling themselves a king is just a mongrel. Ryder tries to get Archer to tell everyone who he is, but Archer refuses, not out of concern for strategy, but because he's insulted that they wouldn't immediately recognize him. While this banter is happening, Karya is hiding out somewhere in the shadows and recognizes Archer as Tokiomi's servant. Faced with the servant of the man who agreed to the Mato's deal and is partly responsible for, for ruining Sakura's life, Karya orders Berserker to kill Archer. The other servants now stop to observe a fifth one entering the fray, a man completely covered in the black armor of a knight, including a helmet that conceals his entire head. He is surrounded by a dark aura that makes the outlines of his armor appear to be in constant flux and prevents both masters and servants from reading his status. Archer casually launches a sword and spear at him. It busts up the road but has little effect otherwise. Berserker had managed to catch the sword in flight and then dodge the spear. Archer tries again, sending many more weapons at the knight. Berserker simply catches the first weapon, a halberd, and uses it to deflect the others that come after. He appears to be a perfect counter to Archer. Uh, <coughs> I will stop here for a moment uh, to mention um, that it is a little bit clever um, that Berserker here is uh, like a bit of a parallel to Archer uh, in that Archer creates infinite weapons, uh, but Berserker here can just like take infinite weapons. Yeah. You can just make whatever into a weapon. Yeah, it's like, it's like fine. I think it is... Like, I, it, it is perfectly interesting. It's, it's whatever to me. Uh, I, Archer's is interesting to me in that, like, what it means in the context of him as a character, and there is just, like, none of that here for me with Lancelot because he's Berserker and therefore can't have any thought. That's true. Yeah, we don't find out here that, like, Berserker is Lancelot, um, but also it's not that important. Um, yeah. Also, yeah, it is sort of... It is sort of, like, as much as I like Berserker's power here, it doesn't make sense as Lancelot's power. No, it doesn't. At all. No, it doesn't. Like, is this is this Gen making some sort of, like, weird-ass jokes about the fact that, like, uh, Lancelot took uh, Arthur's wife? Is that what we're doing here? <laughs> uh, okay, can I be honest? I yeah. fucking hate that Lancelot is fucking uh, Berserker. Like... Oh, hey, here's this really interesting character yeah. uh, for Arthur to interact with. That's That could be, like, a deeply interesting and complicated... No, absolutely not. Yeah, now he can't talk. 
It's he is just specifically like, the one class that does not allow any discussion. It's just exhausting. Like, I read it and I'm just like, oh, cool. Never mind then. Fuck me, I guess. Yeah, it would have it would have been more interesting for, like, the serial killer to have the... Well, not more interesting, but, like, if you're gonna... I could have written if, both of them off instead of just one of them. Yeah, like, if you're gonna give the berserker class to someone, at least, like, put on the serial killer. Because then, like, that has some, like, thematic connection. I guess, um, yeah. Like, like give give Lancelot to someone who can actually like give Lancelot a class that can actually speak for fuck's sake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially considering like I know some of the discussions that happen later on in Fate Zero and some of those discussions about like uh, you know what is a king? What do kings do? What does it mean to be a king? And Lancelot would have some interesting thoughts about that. Sure would. But because he's Berserker, he can't be involved. Like, you are kneecapping your own story by doing this, and I don't understand it. (sighs) And, like, I I admit that I am biased because, uh, like, I love Arthurian legend, and my favorite part of Arthurian legend is the Siege of Castle Joyous. Yeah, like um, Arthurian le- like like Arthurian legend has lasted as long as it has, and is well known as it has, and is as well known as well known as it is for a reason. It's because they're really good stories that hit upon uh, like core themes of the human condition. So if you're gonna have characters who directly uh, call back to those legends, maybe use them to also call back to, like, the themes that made those stories so memorable. It also just, like, complicates Saber in a really interesting way, potentially. And it, it it's yeah. just, like, it feels like giving up so much potential for a thing that we've wanted since literally Fate Stay Night, and it's really frustrating. Uh-huh. <sighs> anyway. Um, I, I mean... What it is to me is it like we just want fundamentally different things than what Gen seems to want from this. Yeah. Yeah, like um like Gen clearly made Lancelot Berserker um because it was cool. Because yeah, because it's cool. And like he is cool, but also eh, not as I don't think he's that cool. I think Outside of the context of what he could have been, I, I do kind of think Berserker is cool. I just don't think he has he is nearly as cool as he could have been if he wasn't a Berserker. Yeah, that's uh-huh. Extremely real. You know? Um so yeah. Um which it's it's interesting to compare this and like the missed opportunity here with how with the fact that like cause we never really complained about Heracles being berserker in Fate State. Because that's like a, def- a definitional part of Heracles' character. Like th- that is like a definitional part of the myth of Heracles that he goes berserk and murders his whole family, and there's like a deep regret associated with that. And like there is a part of Lancelot's myth where he 
kind of loses his mind and like thinks he's someone else and there's the whole thing with Elaine and it gets really messy and complicated. Cool, I get that. But that's not like the interesting part of the character, especially in his relationship with Arthur. Yeah. And Whereas, also like, like with Heracles and how he related to Ilya, like there wasn't a part of where there wasn't a part in in those scenes where we thought, you know, if only Berserker could talk. Like yeah. the fundamental tragedy of that and why why that tragedy was as effective as it was is the fact that neither of them could properly communicate with with each other. Like Ilya because she was raised to be the person she is and never had a normal childhood and doesn't really have a good idea of how to express her feelings and wants and desires and berserker because he literally can't. Right. Uh, and so like the only thing they can do is express themselves, um, with their like, uh, core emotions and physicality. Mm hmm. And, that's what, like, him being a berserker and Ilya being the character she is, is what made that relationship work the way it did. It was done for a very specific purpose. And you're not, like, constantly thinking, God, I wish this had been done differently because, like, there's, because uh, then there could be other interesting things happening. Because there's already interesting things happening because it is the way it is. <laughs> right. Uh, man. It's very funny that, like, the thing that reading Fate Zero is making me do is appreciate Nasu more. Yeah, uh-huh, because Nasu's doing things. <laughs> Which is funny, because, like, in the post-face, Nasu talks about how he really looks up to Genaruchi. I'm like, man, you're so much better, though. Yeah, you are way better at this than him. <laughs> Honey, you are, like, doing a thing on purpose. Uh, anyway, um, let me see here where I leave off. All right. Uh, just as Archer is about to open the gate of Babylon further, Tokiomi has decided he's had enough of Archer flaunting his powers to the other servants and, de and dedicating so much energy to fighting Berserker. Archer feels a tug of a command seal and disappears, heading back to the Tosaka Manor. Deprived of his original target, Berserker notices Saber and she feels a chill run up her spine. He then charges at her, much to Karya's dismay. The more Prana Berserker consumes, the more the crest worms devour his body. From his hiding place, he cries out for Berserker to stop, but the knight isn't listening. As Saber fights Berserker, she, Ryder, and Lancer are all able to figure out what his noble phantasm is. Rather than a weapon, he has a passive ability to turn anything he can get his hands on into a noble phantasm. Lancer decides to intervene, defending Saber from one of Berserker's attacks. Saber has a previous engagement with me, he says. If you keep up this nonsense and interrupt the battle between us, I won't stay quiet. El Malloy is not happy about this, though, and orders Lancer via command spell to assist Berserker in defeating Saber. With anguish in his eyes, Lancer starts attacking her. Believing he has no other options now, Kuritsugu decides to, to risk Assassin's counterattack and aims his rifle at Lancer's master again. Just before he can pull the trigger, though, Ryder's chariot bursts through the battle. Lancer manages to dodge it, but Berserker is trampled by the Divine Bulls. Though it doesn't kill him, he's too injured to stand up and just lies there, face up on the ground. Uh, I just really like the Looney Tunes-ass mental image of 
rider's chariot just like plowing through the battlefield and like a dust cloud like comes up and dissipates and <laughs> berserker is just lying there <laughs> yeah uh-huh it rules uh, Ryder voices his disgust for the despicable tactics used by El Malloy and orders him to have Lancer retreat or else Ryder will side with Saber to defeat Lancer. El Malloy is furious, but he's smart enough to take Ryder's bargain and retreat. Saber thanks Ryder for his assistance and then asks him why he came here in the first place. Ah, I've never considered that properly, he says. All those things like reasons and plans, those bothersome stuff, should be left for future historians to find a reason to give me. Heroes like us only need to, to obey our heart's desire and gallop along the battlefield with our boiling blood. Saber expresses disappointment with the way Ryder believes King should behave, to which he replies, All ways of kingship are unique, for I, who am a king, is as incompatible to you, who are also a king, as fire is to water. You are trying to split this world into two clear bands of black and white. Saber attempts to initiate a fight against him now, but Ryder declines. He doesn't want to take advantage of her weakness. He entreats her to finish her duel with Lancer first. Then he will fight whoever is the victor. With the terms agreed upon, Ryder leaves the battlefield with Waver, who fainted after Ryder's surprise attack against Berserker, in tow. This one needs to learn how to be unwavering, Ryder says before departing. Uh, we now rejoin Bluebeard, who has been watching the proceedings with a, through a crystal ball at his hideout. Ryunosuke can scarcely believe the fantastical things he just saw and asks Caster if all that was actually real. Seemingly oblivious to his master's questions, Caster exclaims out loud to himself that the Grail has already chosen him. When Ryunosuke asks what he means by that, Caster points out the image currently filling his orb, Artoria. She is my light. She guided me forward. She gave me life. She is the purpose of my very existence, Caster explains. She was once abandoned by God, annihilated in disgrace, but now she has been resurrected. It's a miracle. It was because of my faithful wishes that allowed her to be reborn. Um... Cool. So yeah, yeah we, we got another, another dude, dude who's dude obsessed being, with Saber. Yeah, we get another dude being creepy as fuck over Saber. Love yeah. it. Yeah, first it was Gilgamesh and Fate's Day Night, now it's now it's Caster. It's my favorite thing, actually. Uh, it's good. Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to think what I'm trying to remember what Bluebeard's backstory even was. Uh, uh, I, he's I, re- think... He's re- think re- I think he's referring to John of Arc here, right? Yes. That's I, that is my understanding. Yeah, which later becomes, I guess later this is sort of made an inside joke because uh, Takeuchi then makes John of Arc into a saber face, basically. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but here the implication is that Caster is just insane. Um, with the battle over, Kyrie calls a cleanup crew and then contemplates what just unfolded. With Berserker now in play, his partner, Tokiomi, is clearly at a disadvantage. The other servants, ideally Lancer, will need to take care of Berserker before it's safe for Archer to enter the fray. As he's thinking, one of his assassin servants approaches and informs him that she found a familiar outside the church, a bat with a wireless CCD miniature camera attached to its stomach. Kure realizes only Kuritsugu would be the type of person to use modern technology and understands this must mean that his opponent already suspects Kure's deception. And that's pretty much it.
Yep. We get a bit with Karya at the end, but it doesn't, it literally doesn't matter. It's just like, damn, Karya got fucked up. Yeah. I... Maybe what, maybe what'll happen with fate where we were kind of like, oh, this might be mid to bad. Uh, it'll turn around. Maybe. I think even, even we were like way more positive on like the first future. Oh, for sure. Of fate, I... fate route though. I'm mostly just trying not to be too hard on this because, yeah. like, straight up, if we were not reading this for a podcast, I would be like, I'm out. I'm done. <laughs> well, thankfully, uh, there's just three more visual novels, three more light novels. Uh, so, like, we're not going to spend very much time on this. Less time than we would a single route of Fate Stay Night. So, I would rather read Fate again. Like, the first <laughs> route. Uh,. Anyway, um, before we talk about our overall thoughts uh, on the first light novel, I I do want to read the the post face that Gen Urobuchi wrote. Uh, so again, uh, this is all going to be like Gen writing this um, quote. Urobuchi Gen wants to write stories that can warm people's hearts. Those who knew about my creative history would probably furrow their brows and think this is a cold joke. Actually, yeah, man. <laughs> actually, I couldn't completely believe it either, because when I start typing out words on the keyboard, the stories my brain comes up with are always full of madness and despair. In fact, I wasn't like this before. I've often written pieces that didn't have a perfect ending, but by the last chapter, the protagonist would still possess a belief that, although there will be many hardships to come, I still have to hold on. But from I don't know when, I can no longer write works like this. I am full of hatred towards men's so-called happiness and had to push the characters I poured my heart out to create into the abyss of tragedy. For all things in the world, if we just leave them alone and pay them no attention, they are bound to advance in a negative direction. Just like no matter what we do, we can't stop the universe from getting colder. It is only a world that is created through a compilation of progresses of common sense. It can never escape the bondage of its physical laws. Therefore, in order to write a perfect ending for a story, you have to twist the laws of cause and effect, reverse black and white, and even possess a power to move in the opposite direction from the rule of the universe. Only a heavenly and chaste soul that can sing carols of praise towards humanity can save the story. To write a story with a perfect ending is a double challenge to the author's body and soul. Urobuchi Gen had lost that power. It still hasn't recovered. The tragedy syndrome is still continuing within me. Is this a terminal disease? Should I give up on the pure warrior of love that I've longed for? Ascend a pallid battle steed and reincarnate into a dispenser of this virus? Could it be that I could only create pieces that give men courage and hope in my next life? When I wrote this, I wrote courage as lingering ghosts. Could this be because of using... Uh, uh, he goes into like a thing that only makes sense if you know Japanese, so I'm not going to say that part. Uh, honestly, I even wanted to break my pen. I remember watching Spider-Man Spider-Man 2. When I saw Peter wishing that he doesn't have the power to change his body, I also thought perhaps I wish I never I perhaps I wish to never write another script again. Uh, therefore I visited my friend Nasu Kinoko's house on the afternoon of the next day and wanted to tell him my true intention. But before I spoke with him about what I've been thinking in my heart, Takashi Takeuchi got hold of me uh, got ahead of me and started talking. And as soon as he spoke, he brought up an he brought up an unthought of proposal. The parts afterwards are the same as Kanoko's notes. Although the initial plan was just a short piece describing the duel between Kuritsugu and Kirie, the wings of imagination can't be stopped once it is spread open and finally all seven masters and their servants are gathered together. 
I found myself once again immersed in the joy of weaving together a story. It can be said that the launch of Fate Zero saved my writing career. Right now, I'm writing a piece that has been saved and has a perfect ending. To be more, to be more accurate, writing a piece of the, a part of this piece. Yes, the marvelous piece called Fate. It's, it's perfect united ending surrounding the protagonist Emi Ashiro is a set fact. No matter how cruel the end of Zero turns out to be, it wouldn't affect the perfect finish of this entire work. Right now, I've finally got a chance to write a tragic ending according to my heart's desire. No matter how I display the darkness inside my heart, from an overall look, I am nevertheless a partner of the warrior of love, Nasu Kinoko. Oh, yeah. Um, although I didn't completely solve my problem, however, to allow me to once again discover the self that has the joy of creation is already a big improvement. Right now, I'm moving forward step by step. No matter where I end up in the future, I am already very happy at this moment. According to the current projections, Fate Jiro should end in four volumes. At its end, the readers who witness Saber's whimpering will, also, will be so overwhelmed by anger and sadness that they will rip the last volume and go impulsively reinstall Fate Sainite, and then they won't be able to stop until they watch as Saber gains her salvation. That's the conclusion I want to write. End quote. It is so funny comparing this afterwards to the afterwards at the end of uh, any of the Boogie Pop books, because, like, those are, they're about similar things a lot of times, but, like, the way that author writes is just so frank and uh, grounded, as opposed to, like, this lofty and self-aggrandizing way uh, Urobuchi writes about his shit. Like, uh, the first afterward litter of the first Boogie Pat. Uh, Boogie Pop book literally has a part where he's just like, yeah, school is just like a place where you go to be with other people. That That's it. There's nothing like deeper or more dramatic about it. And like the things that are happening are just interacting with other people. That's that's interacting with other people is the thing that gives other stuff meaning. And all this other stuff is just like aggrandizing it. And I'm just trying to approach that. Meanwhile, uh, Urobuchi is like, I'm writing the grandest ideas and uh, it's just exhausting, man. The thing that kills me is like the way Urubuchi des- like describes like, ah, uh, yeah, well, I mean, I just, I just can't write write a perfect ending for a story because you have to like uh, reverse the very uh, entropic nature of the universe. Uh, you know, it's just natural that everything would end horribly because that's how man is. Um, and then he describes how like fate stay night has a perfect ending and i think about how he said to write the story of a perfect ending uh like you need to have um like these uh only only a only a heavenly and chaste soul that can sing carols of praise to our humanity can save the story as like motherfucker did you read fate stay night the people who see the like the characters who made the ending in heaven's field that was the that was the true good ending of fate stay night where shiro where emia shiro uh like a a child who was abandoned by his father and given a uh completely uh completely impossible idea that fucked him up for like so many years that he had to like eventually abandon that ideal for one that actually meant something uh rin tosaka 
who was also given an ideal, a self-destructive ideal by her father who had to abandon the very nature of what a magus is supposed to be. Uh, and Sakura Mato, who had been abused for most of her life and like briefly became a murderer. Those are the people who are the, the chaste souls that sing carols of praise towards humanity. Like, right. <laughs> like, like the, the very th- story you praise proves that you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> like, I, and like clearly Gen is being like overly dramatic here when he describes what you need to do uh, to like have a perfect ending. Uh, D- Gen Urobuchi being dramatic and uh, over exaggerating. But also hey, like so. Yeah. So like clearly he doesn't mean all the characters have to be perfect. Like I understand he's he's being like overly dramatic. But also like. The thing he says about, but also like I have a fundamental a fundamental disagreement with how Gen views how forward progress works. Yeah, I have a fundamental disagreement about how Gen views progress works. I also have a fundamental disagreement with Gen about the nature of art. Yeah, um, it, it, there's this one Vonnegut quote where he says, uh, "During the Vietnam War, every respectable artist in this country was against the war. It was like a laser beam." We were all aimed in the same direction. The power of this weapon turns out to be that of a custard pie dropped from a step ladder six feet high. And, like, Gen does this thing that, like, that 16-year-olds do all the time when they are interested in being a writer, where they deeply, wildly overvalue the power and weight of art and of writing, as opposed to, like, being a thing that is about people and, like, the thing that gives it meaning is, like, the ways people interact with it. And, like, he's like, no, you have to reverse causality to make art function. It's like, you don't, man. It, it's not that big a deal. You need to reel it in. Yeah. Because, like, I wanted to read that entire post face, even though it was a little long, because the fact that, like, Urubuchi admits here that, like... You know, even in a melo, even though his you know writing is melodramatic about it, like I believe him when he says that his fundamental belief is that the nature of humanity is just like entropy, and that things will naturally get worse unless we have some shining soul to save us. Yeah, I I believe him. When he says that, that. yeah, because the the single shining shining soul that serves an example that that saves the system is a thing that he does multiple times, and also is completely wrong in reality. I mean, it's like the core thing behind Madoka, and like the rejection of that concept is called the devil. Even though I'm like, yeah, she's the coolest part. Yeah, it like this this post face almost single-handedly turns my opinion around on rebellion, but not in the way that Gen would probably think of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's what I mean when I talk about Madoka where I'm like I think Madoka's great and I don't think Gen realizes why. And like the the same like similar things happen in like 
Psychopaths too. Like yeah, the ending of Psychopaths is like the one good cop. <laughs> like, I, I mean, yeah, this whole post face is just like, oh, he he just says it out loud. Like all of the nihilism and shit that we pinned on him, and we were like, eh, we may be being a little hard. No, he just says it out loud. Yeah, he thinks that. Yeah, and like again, in contrast, the ending of Fate Stay Stay Night, where it's like, not only is it ju- not just like a single person who reverses the fate of the world but even then like uh the the scene where zoken finally dies for real makes it clear that like even this ending even the ending ending to the heavens feel root is simply one step along the process and it will take multiple lifetimes of people who think and act like the protagonist of fate stay night to truly achieve heavens feel Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and like immediately Gen is like I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I, we are clearly deeply interested in very different things. Like Gen has Gen has never heard of social movements. He really hasn't. It's like you you show Gen like uh get you would blow Gen's mind if you told him about fucking Stonewall or Malcolm X or the Black Panthers in general or <laughs> or well, like the... He needs to have the Black Panthers so that he can do some just really racist shit to make them villains. Yeah, uh-huh. It's just... It's just, my dude, that's not how social progress happens, man. It's not the compilation of progresses of common sense. Frequently, the things that make the changes are not considered common sense during the time. They are considered degenerate because they are going against the conservative nature of the times. Yep. Like, you have no fucking clue what you are talking about, and is very obvious. Like, it's... Like it is, you can kind of you can kind of get those just by reviewing his his works and like just taking the works at on their own merit. But it is made blatantly obvious through how he talks about himself right here. Yeah. <sighs> so yeah, Fate Zero. <laughs> uh, it's. I'm so glad this series is only four books long. Thank God for Waver and Ryder. We're, I'm going to get so, like, I can just tell you right now, I'm trying really hard to give this book a fair shake. I've read enough books, and I've read enough trash to know when I start something to know it's gonna piss me the fuck (laughs) off by the end of it. I'm gonna get so mad by the end of this book. I guarantee you. Yeah, I, I feel I feel like if 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 this sort of feeling continues with like if this sort of if the rest of Fate Zero is like this one, it'll be really funny because I will I'll end up with the opinion of like just just read just watch the anime you'll be less mad <laughs> you'll just get to enjoy the cool fight scenes and none of like and and very well not none but like significantly less of Gen Urobuchi's fucked up worldview. <laughs> honestly i wouldn't be surprised if by the end of this i'm like don't even watch the anime it's not worth it (laughs) i don't know you still have like 
saber in a cool suit riding a motorcycle. Hey, you know what else has saber in a cool suit riding a motorcycle? DeviantArt. Yeah, I guess. That's a better use of your time. Go on <laughs> DeviantArt. Learn some new things about yourself. Uh, anyway, um, that'll be it for, for this episode of Sabermetrics, because we both have things to do. We do. Goodbye, y'all. Goodbye. She's
君を